According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Am I on speakers? Can you hear me? All right. Join me, if you would, this morning in Proverbs chapter 22, picking up where we left off last week in Proverbs 22. I know some of the sound settings have been tweaked and adjusted. We're trying to get louder MP3s on the website. We're trying to get louder YouTube streams. Somebody said we uh, don't have very loud volume in our recording. So the team is working on it. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Proverbs 22.1 establishes the heading for the rest of the chapter, at least down through verse 16. And, uh, and then verses 2 through 16 form an outline for the person that's described there in verse 1. The believer that's living his life according to the Word of God, uh, you have a good name because you are conformed to the Word of God, the standards of God's Word. And the grace of God that comes as you occupy yourself with the Word of God is part of the blessings that we have here as well. Alright, so we've been dealing with this. We want to move on this morning and try to gain some new ground. Before we do though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon Your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So Proverbs 22, and I just realized I left my paper notes on the printer at at home. That's fine. I've got a slideshow. I'll just follow along and see what uh, shows up on the slideshow here. Um, Talking about the breakdown after verse 16. We'll get past all that. Chapter begins with integrity and grace both of which are better than material wealth. And yet here we got a whole culture full of people that are chasing down material wealth. They should be chasing down uh, grace. Alright. Verses 2 through 16 forms a miniature book of Proverbs. In fact, you can look at these verses and see essentially all the book of Proverbs just encapsulated right here. Uh, I don't think there's anything in these verses that isn't something we haven't seen before. So each time we come to a principle it's like, oh yeah, we've studied this already. And here it is. So it's a a miniature uh, book of Proverbs summarizing the essence of proverbial wisdom. And this is what we all should be striving for. Every last one of us should be noted for our wisdom because we're living our lives in the Word of God. We're submitted to God's wisdom. We're not leaning on our own understanding and in all our ways we're acknowledging Him. He's directing our steps. And so uh, this, uh, these verses then form an outline for this kind of walk. The essence of proverbial wisdom in the lives of those with a well-grounded grace reputation. In other words, for those that are living the verse 1 reality. And so we've tackled now um, the issues on rich and poor, which is not only verse 2 but also verse 16. Pay attention because the, uh, in verse 2 we saw that the rich and poor have a common bond, the Lord is the maker of them all. And on that basis, when we understand that this is the common bond for all humanity, we are created equal, we are all image bearers in the image of God, that we are endowed by our Creator with these inalienable rights. Okay? 
And so this is the common bond for all humanity. And so abusing the poor is a mockery. We can't victimize the poor simply because we can. What's, that, is a, that is a mockery and God will not tolerate it. And when you glance down to verse 16, you see the issue is presented there. He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or he who, uh, who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And so you can't abuse uh, the poor in, uh, in this way. And so we looked at that. There was also Proverbs 14.31 and Proverbs 17.5. And uh, so these are issues that we've seen before. So verse 2 and verse 6 both have that rich and poor contrast and it serves as the bookends, if you will, for everything then in the middle, verses uh, 3 through 15. In verse 3 we talk about the prudent. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. There is a time to hide. There's a time to, uh, to uh, practice practical perspicuity. Okay, That means you're hiding. That means you're choosing to be elsewhere. That means you're not fighting the good fight because this is not the time to fight. This is the time to be elsewhere. And Jesus hid himself several times. It's not a sin when you're uh, avoiding the, uh, the conflict when God tells you to avoid the conflict. And of course there's also a time to fight. We understand both realities are true. Uh, verse 4, we have the fear of the Lord principles. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Again, it's not the first time we've seen this. We had it in chapter 3, we had it in chapter 21. It comes back again and again. God is opposed to the proud but He gives grace to the humble. And uh, we do need to humble ourselves. We do need to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Apart from the fear of the Lord there is no wisdom. And I hope we understand this. Get to verse 5 and we have the perversity. The way of the perverse. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. And if you want to uh, be biblical about it and uh, use the biblical terminology for who the perverts are, you understand the perverts are anybody that's not walking according to God's wisdom. Because uh, the, uh, anything that Satan perverts is a perversion. Not just sexual perversion, but all kinds of perversions. And Satan has structured this entire world to twist and pervert God's design for everything. His design for volition, his design for marriage, his design for family, his design for nationalism, his design for uh, economics, his design for everything in, in secular life. We should be conforming our secular life to our spiritual life. In other words, uh, bios has to be uh, patterned after the principles of our Zoe life that we get in, in the wisdom from God's Word. And anything that departs from that is a perversion. Called here the way of the perverse. And so thorns and snares, and this is part of God's secular discipline upon a secular life that's not living uh, in, according to the standard of God's Word. But he who guards himself will be far from them. So we guard ourselves from these thorns and in in these snares. We're, we're keeping away from the way of the perverse. We are, uh, we're following God's pattern of wisdom and not Satan's plan and program. Verse 6, of course, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old he will not depart from it. This is uh, the doctrinal grounding that we want to uh, uh, instill upon our children. It conveys lifelong benefits and conveys eternal benefits. Doctrinal grounding conveys lifelong and eternal benefits. And this is the role for parents. Again, when you track the laws of divine establishment as they're presented in Genesis and as they're presented throughout all of Scriptures, we have individual volition, we have marriage, and it's the context of marriage that raises the children in the, in the uh, scope of the family. 
is once you get past the scope of the family and the interaction between families then that we have the principles for nationalism, the principles for nations. And so the uh, uh, unlike the survey that came out this week, the, uh, the decision, the primary decision makers for the vaccination of children, biblically speaking, should be the parents, not the government. And right now there seems to be a divided opinion on that and it's heartbreaking to me that it was only 64% of the Americans surveyed who felt that the parents should have the primary decision on the vaccination of children. And I want to know who are the other 36% and can we, can we slap them silly and, and wake them up to some truth that uh, <laughs> it's not the government's job to raise the children any more than it's the government's job to tell me who to marry or it's the government's job to coerce my volition. So there's volition, marriage, family, and nationalism, and let's keep these issues straight. Anyway, train up a child in the way he should go. Doctrinal grounding. And whether you're looking at Proverbs 22 or Deuteronomy 6 or Psalm 78, or I don't care where you're looking, it's the parent's job to raise the children and to instill these biblical values. And when that Word of God is treasured from the youngest of ages, there is a lifelong and eternal benefit. Last week we were looking at verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And we almost got through the entire thing. There was a couple of subpoints, and this is where we'll pick up here this morning. But let's just realize that in addition to obviously um, the fact that there are rich people and there are poor people and there's people everywhere in between, okay? And, uh, but there is a dynamic that takes place with uh, purchasing power. There's a dynamic that takes place with the buying and, uh, not just buying and selling, but with the borrowing and lending activity between, uh, between people. And so this is something we want to understand. Both sides of verse 7 I think are very important. Starting with the rich rules over the poor. There is a ruling dynamic. There is uh, at the end of the day when push comes to shove, uh, the people with the money get what they want sooner than the people that don't have the money. And in some cases, um, you know, the people that have the money get what they want and the people that don't have the money don't get it because they get outbid, they get outbought, they get out, the, the purchasing power overrules what, what it is they would like to have. You know, this was not the first piece of land we put a bid on. We actually expressed interest in a place down the street and uh, somebody else jumped in and, and outbid us on it. And so, well, okay, the rich rules over the poor. How about that? <laughs> okay. Or, you know, the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules, you know. Uh, but that's not, this verse is not written to say it's a problem. This verse is written to say this is how it goes. That the, uh, the function of money, the function of wealth, the function of free trade, the function of buying and selling is such that, that it allows for people to interact with one another on a on, a, on an economic basis rather than a, than a military basis, rather than just might makes right and take what you want and beat up somebody and, 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 uh, and whatever else. And so we use economics as a means to interact one with another. And on that basis, the, uh, the rich rules over the poor. That's how it goes. Okay? And, uh, and there you have it. All right. But then the second part of the verse. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. That's a new dynamic. That's not just ruling, that's actually slavery. Okay? And, and paying attention to this is useful 
because you see, you can see the contrast between ruling and slavery. You can see the contrast between the verbs, the expressions, even the concepts, all right? Because the ruling is is found within the marriage bond, right? That you uh, her desire will be for her husband, yet he shall rule over her. Same word as, as we have here. The rich rules over the poor. But slavery? Marriage isn't a slavery relationship. That's, that's entirely different. So we, we realize there's two sides to this verse. The A part and the B part of verse 7. And what happens then when um, not only do you have the dynamic of rich and poor, but now you have an obligation that's written into the lending activity, into the borrowing activity. And that obligation connects you with that person. So the borrowing, so wealth disparity is one thing. But the borrowing lending dynamic creates bondage in the creation of a joint venture. As soon as you have a, a buying and lending relationship, a borrowing and lending where you have a debtor and, and you are the slave, the borrower becomes the lender's slave, you now have an obligation until that debt is paid off, that that relationship will stay in place until the end of that term. So it creates a bondage. Now we've already seen the debt principles regarding surety and pledges. Those are separate issues. In fact, they're problematic. Uh, don't become surety for your neighbor. You're told not to. And if you are, because of a past dumb decision, get out of it now. Get out of it today. And uh, don't make a past dumb decision even worse by continuing to make further dumb decisions today and tomorrow. But remedy that past dumb decision by getting out of it today no matter the cost. Break free from it like a bird from a trap. And that's the, uh, the emphasis there in Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. There's other Proverbs as well that talk about surety. Don't become surety for somebody else, for a stranger especially. God designed for the business dealings. In fact, God designed the, the economic system for Israel as a theocracy and perfect government, perfect economics, perfect dynamics between families and clans and tribes so that they could operate as a nation. And then how do they operate as a nation with their neighboring nations? Those principles are all plainly seen. The verb that creates this dynamic is the verb lava. The verb lava. Okay? And lava means to join. And it means to join. And in an economic context, it means to either borrow or lend. And this is why uh, borrowing and lending is different from buying and selling. With buying and selling, you're not joined to the person you just transacted business with. Okay, you go to you go to HEB, you buy a gallon of milk. Um, you freely gave HEB three bucks. They freely gave you a gallon of milk, and and that's it. You're done. Both parties walk away. Is milk three dollars? I don't even know. Uh, the but you both walk away from the transaction, and you're both benefited from the transaction. That uh, HEB profits because they got the three dollars. I profit because I got the the gallon of milk, and each party in the transaction benefited. That I valued the milk more than I valued the three dollars, so I my net worth increased when I departed with the milk. They valued the three dollars as more than the milk, so their increase went up as well. It was a win-win. I increased, they increased. I gave, they gave. And in the mutual voluntary giving, in a free will giving operation, we, uh, we, we glorified Jesus Christ. And we imitated God the Father who so loved the world that He gave. 
Okay? So it's all about what we want to give and what we give and the freedom we have to give. But we're not bound. We're not bound. I'm not in a, in a, in a long-term arrangement where I'm obligated to go back again and, and buy more milk next time. And, and, and so I, I can go somewhere else if I want to next time. <clears throat> and if um, somebody else wants to sell me milk for $2, well then, there you go. That's how it works. Because the, uh, the rich rule over the poor. <laughs> okay? Money talks. That's the dynamic. Oh, and if somebody else wants to pay five bucks, then I lose out. Because H-E-B is going to sell to them for five bucks instead of me for three bucks. Because again, the rich rules over the poor. Scripture is not describing that as a bad thing. It's describing it as a good thing. Because you have to count the cost. And if you're not willing to pay the cost, then you don't pay the cost. It's plain and simple. But praise God that Jesus paid the cost. He counted it and He paid it. And if that's... if that doesn't mean anything. I mean, if you, if you want to be satanic about it and just create some kind of a communist utopia where everything's free and somebody else pays the cost and you can just, everybody be, is equal and all blah, 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 then you're, you're defying fundamental principles of, of creation as God designed it for us to function. Anyway, don't get me going on that. But the verb is lava, to join. This is where Levi gets his name. And so when she named her son Levi... Oh yeah, I was going to show you that. If I have time before class is over, remind me, I'll show you the, some of the tweaks to the website there. Alright, so I need to... Uh, I meant to get this set up earlier, sorry about that. We're going to float this panel and turn off the Hebrew and Greek. Here we go. Proverbs 22, 7. That's what we're looking at. But in the naming of uh, Levi, Genesis 29, 34, this is Leah now. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me, will become joined to me. And this verse will help you to remember Levi means joined. Will become attached to me, will become Levi to me because I have borne him three sons, therefore he was named Levi. <clears throat> and so this is what happens. When you buy something, you're not joined to anybody. But when you borrow money, you're joined. Okay? You're joined to the lender, and the lender is joined to you. And you have a duty, you have an obligation. And there's consequences if you don't, if you don't uh, fulfill that obligation. If you're, uh, in, in the ancient world, that, that was slavery. In the ancient world, uh, the debtor was, was enslaved until he paid off the debts. Alright. Anyway, the, uh, the, uh, the issue there, I think it's, it's interesting and there's other, other elements of, uh, of that that I think come into play here. Did we look at all these? I think we did. Isaiah 24, 2. Remember the, the little apocalypse we were looking at that? Yeah. People will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower. Both of which are lava, by the way. The same verb for lending is the same verb for borrowing. The lender is like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The creditor like the debtor. So everybody's equal, right? Isn't that the panacea? Isn't that the utopia? 
Isn't the world a great place when everybody's the same? Actually, no, this is a description of the Great Tribulation. And the earth is greatly, completely laid waste, completely despoiled. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. This is a bad chapter. You don't want to be here, okay? We're not going to be here. We get raptured out before this happens, okay? Good news for us. But the whole idea of, of uh, equality presented there in verse 2, that's not a good thing, okay? <laughs> not a good thing. All right, so we have the issues there. Let's move on then. Let's get our first look at verse 8. Gain some new ground this morning, Proverbs 22, 8. <clears throat> he who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. Now of everything that's in these verses, this is actually uh, one that I don't know we've seen before. I'm not, it's not entirely clear. I think we've approached it. I think we've touched on it. Um, I'd have to go back and hunt for it again. I, I was looking for it earlier, and I don't see where in the, with this language that we've had sowing and reaping in Proverbs, I'll, I'll search for that again before next week, um, but we do have a fundamental element of Scripture that's found throughout the Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, church age, uh, dispensation of Israel for the Gentiles, for the angels. There's never been a stewardship where the law of sowing and reaping did not apply. Sowing and reaping is a fundamental element of God's design for a volitional moral existence. It's a fundamental element, which is why I think Satan attacks it so much. I think this world has created an alternative fundamental element, right? The, uh, the elemental things of this world that we're told to avoid, we're told uh, that we were redeemed out of. But the elemental principles of the cosmos in, uh, includes a denial of sowing and reaping. It includes a denial that it's ever your fault. You can always blame somebody else. But the law of sowing and reaping says you make decisions, you face the consequences of those decisions. And this is how God Himself operates. This is how the Father operates, how the Son operates. They make choices and they, they experience the consequences of those choices. And so this is how humanity operates. But even the angels, the fallen angels live in denial of this to this day. That uh, they you know, just like in all the accusations of, of, uh, that are recorded for us in the book of Job, um, those are Satan's accusations. That God's unfair. That he's, he's being unfairly judged. He's being unfairly treated. And in Job's case it was true. Job didn't do anything to deserve what he was getting. But in Satan's case it's not true. Satan defied the living God. And he's facing consequences for that defiance. So sowing and reaping is a fundamental element. And, and the sooner we can learn this, the better. Our children need to learn this. They need to learn this at a very young age. This is why they have consequences for their disobedience. This is, what, this is uh, called spanking. This is called being grounded. This is called um, every other parental discipline that's ever been invented. Uh, when there's consequences for choices the, the children have made. So they can learn to make better choices. They can learn to make obedient choices. They can learn conformity to the will of their parents and all of that is training for conformity to the will of God. So they're able to take the parents as an analogy and say, you know what, I've got a heavenly father and I need to be conformed to his will. And if not, then his spankings are a whole lot worse than my human dad's have ever been. And issues there. And so there's consequences, decisions and consequences. I worked in the jail for eight years and I, I can't tell you how many inmates, grown men, well I won't say grown men, 
biologically adult inmates, okay, who never did really grow up. So they're still intellectually and emotionally and, and socially and spiritually, they're, they're just infants. Um, but they've never learned sowing and reaping. Even though they're in jail because of the law of sowing and reaping. They've made decisions. They, they're facing the consequences. They're, they're, they've been incarcerated because they've been convicted. They've been convicted because they committed a crime and they were arrested. And yet they will sit there and swear all day long that it's not their fault, that somebody else is to blame, that you know, something else was out of their control or they didn't really do it or all this other stuff. And so I you know, made attempts every now and then to talk about decisions and consequences, sowing and reaping. Job 4 and verse 8 is an illustration of this. And this is um, a little bit problematic. In Job 4 you got the words of Eliphaz here. And this is his opening argument to blame Job for what he's dealing with. Um, He says in verse 7, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? And he's reflecting human wisdom. He's reflecting human viewpoint in a lot of ways. There's other uh, elements behind his, his, his uh, thinking, his thought process here. But don't separate the fact that this is still in the early generations after the flood. That Noah and Noah's sons are still alive. That the patriarchs they refer to are Noah and his sons that survived the flood. And so they're They've got global judgment in the immediate history of what they're dealing with. It's like asking people who survived the, uh, the uh, who, who lived through the Great Depression, uh, asking them to forget that experience about what they the, what they went through. Okay, you can't you can't have Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. You can't take their argumentation and separate it away from Noah's flood. So whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen. Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. All right, so there's a couple of different dynamics here. He's not wrong as far as he's reflecting God's divine viewpoint. Where he goes wrong is taking human viewpoint, mixing it in, and then blaming Job for what Job's experiencing. Those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. That's true as far as it goes. The law of sowing and reaping, absolutely. That is, that is he's not wrong about that. But to assign it to Job to say that that's the only dynamic at work. There's other dynamics that also work, like undeserved suffering, like angelic conflict, like um, enduring things that you don't earn and deserve because God's assigned it to you to teach other lessons to other people, or to teach you lessons. Things that you can't learn otherwise. Jesus couldn't learn lessons he, he learned without the suffering he had to go through. So it's the same thing with Job and Mrs. Job. They're going to learn these things with the death of their kids and all the other stuff that that goes on there. Whoever perished being innocent. How about Jesus Christ on the cross? <laughs> you know? This, um, it's a marvelous evangelistic verse and he doesn't even know it. He's communicating this uh, thousands of years before the cross. Where were the upright destroyed? How about Jesus Christ on the cross? Accepting judgment in our place. Anyway, he's not wrong about the law of sowing and reaping. Hosea. This is famous. And this is prophetic. Uh, This deals with Israel. We have other applications for Gentile nations as well, or even personal life. Um, Let's see. 
Shall I read the whole chapter? Put the trumpet to your lips like an eagle the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. All right, so judgment's on the way. Remember Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is about to be destroyed. Um, Battle's coming and it's you know, it's your, it's your judgment. You were idol, idol worshipers and now uh, Assyria is going to wipe away the northern kingdom of Israel. They transgressed my covenant, rebelled against my law. They cry out to me. Yeah, right. My God, we of Israel know you. Yeah, people get real religious when they're in trouble. But Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I didn't know it. With their silver and gold they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken into pieces. Remember Aaron made a golden calf uh, at the Exodus. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, made two golden calves. They doubled the idolatry, doubled the evil. For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Here's the principle. The law of sowing and reaping is proportionate. The law of sowing and reaping is exponential. Because God is so gracious when He gives time to repent. God is so gracious when He gives warnings. When He, when he, uh, when he walks in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Or when He goes to Cain and, and uh, says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God gives so many gracious opportunities for repentance, for salvation, for recovery from darkness and all these things. And so when you are sowing the wind, when you are, it is not just a single event. You are sowing, you are repeatedly sowing, you are repeatedly sowing, and over a long time when that payment finally comes due, okay, because there's a price to pay for this, and when it finally comes due, it comes due with interest, <laughs> it comes due with, with uh, an increase. So you're sowing wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. And this is the judgment they're headed to. A couple chapters later in, in Hosea chapter 10. On a positive basis, see sowing and reaping is not always negative. It's not always the bad stuff we do. There can also be positive sowing. We, we have positive sowing in the New Testament as well when we have grace giving. We have other principles in the church age. But sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. And this shows a positive sowing. It's going to have a positive reaping. Again, with interest, with an increase, with a, an abundance as God pays back. And then I also enjoy the the descriptions here, because I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, I'm not a gardener, I'm not a, I'm not anything, but so the instructions helps, okay. And look, you got to break up the fallow ground, okay. Before you can sow anything, you can't just throw seed at the dirt. You got to break up the fallow ground. You've got to actually put the seed under the dirt, theoretically. You got to put the dirt on top of the seeds, right? Then you got to water. Then you got to wait. Then you got to weed. Because if there, there's weeds that creep in there, you've got to get the weeds out so that the seeds, the, the crop comes up that you want. If I'm wrong about any of this, talk to me after class because I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a farmer. 
I'm just reading what the Bible says here. Break up your fallow ground. But see, this too, I think, is also the nature of sowing and reaping in terms of the uh, the sin patterns, the prolonged carnality, the the life of reversionism, the life of darkness. Because it's not just a, a single sin that's being judged in this in these contexts. It's not just uh, an individual personal sin that you committed, and then of course you can confess and be restored to fellowship. No, we're talking about the sowing activity. Okay, the sowing activity, which means besides the actual sin that you did, you actually plowed the ground to get ready for that sin. You prepared for a whole row of sins, because you didn't just plant a single seed, you actually planted a crop. And so you did a lot of plowing. You were preparing for those sins. And then you, you know, whatever else you did in your plowing, in your sowing, So the harvest comes and it's the whirlwind, right? So break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Part of um, sowing is, is, is this. You're breaking up the fallow ground and you're waiting. You're waiting. Waiting for the rain to come. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way in your numerous warriors. Remember, if you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in weapons, you're trusting in wealth, you're trusting in man, trusting in politics, trusting in your bank account, whatever it is you're trusting in. There's only one appropriate object for your faith, and that's God. The only appropriate object for your faith is God. If you're trusting in anything besides God, it's idolatry, and you're going to reap the whirlwind. Therefore a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. And it just goes downhill from there. All right. Yeah, how about the New Testament? Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So, I mean, you get out of it what you put into it. Are you sowing carnality? Are you sowing spirituality? You're going to reap one or the other. The one who sows to his own flesh, in other words, you're out of fellowship, you're walking in darkness, will from the flesh reap corruption. That's what you're going to get. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you're walking in the fellowship or out of fellowship? In the light, out, walking in darkness. What are you doing? This is the law of sowing and reaping. By the way, this goes back to, nope, don't do that. This is what happens when I hit control H instead of control G. Hebrews 2.2. 2. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Alright? Now different pastors handle this with different ways. Uh, but I adapt this, I take this for application to Satan's fall, the application to the angelic conflict, the pre-Adamic rebellion that took place, the choose you this day whom you will serve event. And a third of the angels went with Satan. And two-thirds of the angels stayed with, stayed with God. And, uh, and now, they're, now they're locked in. The word they gave, the word they gave now is unalterable. That they are locked into their estate. Gabriel and Michael are permanently elect angels and uh, Satan and Beelzebub and whoever else, they're uh, eternally fallen angels. 
Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know, they're getting what they deserve. We were offered a grace salvation to not get what we deserve. To accept that Jesus took what we deserve. You realize what we've been given is is so gracious and so marvelous and so infinite and um, it's just unthinkable that uh, people reject the free gift and decide to go down Satan's path and decide, oh no, they want to they want to they want to function based on what we earn and deserve. Are you kidding me? Oh, that's darkness. Then we get into generosity. Proverbs 22, 9. Proverbs 22, 9. Before I forget, let me go ahead and search for this while it's on my mind. Let's go back to verse 8. He who sows iniquity will also reap vanity. All right, take a look at the verbs are at. Take a look at where it's used elsewhere in the Bible. 56 results in 54 verses. Only twice in Proverbs. All right, Proverbs eleven eighteen was the previous time. Proverbs twenty two eight. Okay, so here we go. Proverbs eleven eighteen. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. So there you have it. Again. This, uh, this verse 8 is not an exception to the rule. Every verse in this section has themes that have already previously been developed. The idea of sowing and reaping was previously developed in chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 18. All right. Well, I'm glad I searched for that. All right. Verse uh, 9. Blessed generosity He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Blessed generosity. When we talk about happiness, when we talk about the Beatitudes, the ways in the the Old Testament and the New Testament alike that God describes personal happiness. In the Hebrew it's asher, in the the Greek it's makarios. And uh, we have it throughout the Psalms, we have it throughout the Proverbs, we have it in different places in the Old Testament where God describes personal happiness. And personal happiness is an immediate blessing for those that are living according to the Word of God. Jesus describes happiness. It's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Matthew chapter 5. really should be happy are, happy are, happy are. And uh, that way we don't confuse happiness with eulogetos blessings. In any event, we have blessed generosity. And where does the happiness come from? Well, he who is generous. You want to be happy? Be generous. You want to be a Scrooge? (laughs) Okay, there's no happiness in that. Giving some of his food to the poor. 
that should generate the, the Asherah happiness. Because you get to be a generous person. You get to be a grace reflection of God's grace. Alright, it's a theme that we've seen previously. Chapter 11, chapter 19, chapter 21. We've had uh, previous descriptions of generosity. The Hebrew idiom, by the way, is a good eye. A fat eye. A, uh, the King James has a um, bounteous, I think bounteous is the word that's used. A bounteous eye. And this is a, a generosity that's not looking around with, a, not, it's not a greedy eye. It's not looking for, uh, for the next thing that you can devour and scarf down and, and stuff yourself with. You're actually looking around, the bountiful eye is looking around saying, who can I share with? Because I have the bounty and there's, there's got to be somebody that, that has a need, who can I share with? That's the bounteous eye. That's the generous eye. And so he who is generous will be blessed. We'll be happy, for he gives some of his food to the poor. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Yeah, it has a good eye, a bounteous eye. Okay? Principles we've seen here before, 11.25. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. The generous, the good eye, will be made fat. How about that? Being made fat is described of prosperity. <laughs> we have different idioms these days. These days we don't use fat as a positive uh, metaphor. Okay, But in the ancient world it was absolutely a positive metaphor. But this is the nature of the generous man. And you know, uh, again, the rituals over the poor. I mean there's just some fundamental issues to the human experience and this is how God designed it. Uh, the poor people aren't generous. They can't be. They don't have the bounty. They don't have the excess. They might be generous in spirit. They might want to. And, and when they do give, like the widow with her might, it's a small, finite amount, but it can still be spiritual. It can still be a, a, a spiritual bounty. I don't want to confuse that issue with what we're looking at here today. But the idea of being generous, recognizing that we all are uh, abounding, even if we think we're not. We're all abounding as God's grace comes into our life. So we, we just celebrate God's grace in our life and we, we, uh, we're generous with the abounding. He who waters will himself be watered. And that's, that takes away the selfishness from the picture of thinking, well, I, I, can't, I can't water this other person because then I won't have any. No, no. It's, it's you in watering that person that then in turn waters yourself. God is faithful. Uh, Proverbs nineteen seventeen. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. He will repay him for his good deed. He who is gracious to the poor man. And this, we spend a lot of time on this verse, recognizing that God considers that his debt. That God volitionally chooses to obligate himself to repay our generosity. We don't force God to repay it. It's not a, we don't manipulate God into this. God voluntarily puts himself into the, the debtor role when he observes our generosity. That God looks at a Christian in grace principles and goes, I'm going to reward that. And he chooses to do that. He wants to do that. It delights him to do that. Because what he's observing is a reflection of himself. He's, when he observes that grace, when he observes that generosity, he is observing a testimony to his own grace and glory. 
And so he rewards that. Happy to repay him for his good deed. Proverbs 21.13 He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Again, consequences. You might you know, link this with the, the previous verse on the reaping and sowing. and they, they do go together. Okay? Because if you shut your ear to the cry of the poor, if you're not generous, then you're sowing and you're going to reap that. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor. This is, why do you think God opened your ear to hear that? He wanted you to hear that. He wanted you to respond in grace. He wanted you to observe that this is a circumstance that you can be the conduit for abundance and generosity and grace and glory. And instead, when, uh, when he placed before you an open door, you close your ear, you close your heart, you just you don't, uh, you don't bear the fruit that he laid before you. And so there's going to be consequences for that too. Okay? Remember the, uh, the unright- remember the slave that was forgiven the billion dollar debt and then he turned, he started choking out a fellow slave for a, you know, a five dollar debt or whatever? Okay? The proportions on, the, on what he was forgiven and what he wouldn't forgive was, was astronomical. And so what's the consequences then when so much grace has come into your life and you can't manifest grace, you can't be a conduit of grace? That parable has a horrendous consequence for that, that slave. Okay? So you're shutting your ear to the cry of the poor? Well, guess what? Next time you call out to the Lord in prayer, is God going to say, la, 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 can't hear you, can't hear you, can't hear you? All right? Now, not to be crude with it or anything, but yes, He will. God will sovereignly close His ears to teach you so that you can wake up and realize, man, that's what I was doing. Okay? And then you better confess that so He'll open His ears again. <laughs> and the issue is a carnality issue. God doesn't listen to anybody when they're carnal, right? You know that. So shutting your ear to the cry of the poor puts you in carnality and God's not going to hear your prayers. So that's Proverbs 21, 13. Um, under Mosaic law this was given. Let me get to Deuteronomy 15, 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. Now keep in mind the land was distributed by tribes. Everybody that was living in that locality would automatically be part of that tribe, part of maybe the same clan or a related clan. However the families and clans and tribes were structured, they were in proximity with each other. And so this poor man with you is one of your brothers, one of your kinsmen. You shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. And there's a difference between generously lending and legalistically lending. There's the, we, we talked about that. There's different words for a borrower and a lender, which are different words for a creditor and a debtor. Because when you go into the creditor and debtor mode, when you have the surety uh, warnings that you're ignoring, all of those are the, the, the worldly carnal areas that, that the, the Old Testament prohibited. 
The Old Testament banned Israel from living off of usury or victimizing people for their profit and benefit. That when lending does become necessary that, uh, that it was to be a generous lending and it's to be sufficient for his needs and whatever he lacks. And it may even be that he ends up being, your brother ends up being sold into your hand as, as a slave. Or you may have to redeem his property. You may have to redeem his, his uh, wife and kids because you're the kinsman redeemer called to do that. Now beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near. <laughs> okay? You know, in the first year it's a little bit easier because you know he's got six years to pay you back. But when that Sabbath year comes along and you think, hmm, he's going to get, he's going to have his debts forgiven in that Sabbath year. Am I going to loan him money this year? So beware there's no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year of the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing, then he may cry out to the Lord against you and it will be a sin to you. Because God knows what you were doing. God knows you closed your ears. You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. See who's ultimately in charge of these things anyway? You say, oh, well, it's just poor timing. Well, who's in charge of the timing? Okay. Is it year six? Is the, is the Sabbath next year? Or even worse, the Jubilee year. That just magnifies it because then you get year 49 and year 50 back to back. God knows what year it is. He, he's not oblivious to the calendar. And he put a test in front of you with this brother's poorness right here, right now. What are you going to do? For the poor will never cease to be in the land. You notice that? If it's not this guy, it's going to be somebody else. And if it's not this year, it's going to be next year. Or the year after that, or the year after that, or the year after that. You know what? In year six, the year before the the forgiveness year, there's always poor. (laughs) So you don't loan to people in the first five years. And Anyway, there's so much here. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Jesus said this too, right? He said, the poor you will have with you always, but me you will not always have with you always. And they were, they were maladjusted to the, even the cross. He's getting ready to go to the cross and they're complaining about, about the, uh, the oil the woman was putting on his head. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. It's only a satanic lie that ha- creates a utop- utopia that says we'll never have poor ever again. Everybody will be equal. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. All right, so that's verses 7 through 11. And then there's things with slavery. A Hebrew slave will serve you for six years and the seventh year you will set him free. And you don't send him away empty-handed. You furnish him liberally from your flock. All right. The Apostle Paul says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. We're backing up. He says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this matter you must help the weak. By working hard. He says, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and the men who are with me. This is the principle. You work to have an abundance. You work to provide for yourself and to provide for others to have an abundance. 
And everything I showed you by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's an amazing quote that we don't have in the canon. <laughs> you can search Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not find it in the written canon. But it was apparently a statement that the Lord made and the Holy Spirit recorded it. And uh, you have red letters in the book of Acts. How about that? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And it is more blessed meaning it is more happy. Meaning he probably adapted the verse we're looking at here this morning. He probably took Proverbs 22.9 and adapted it when he uttered this to his disciples. When he said, he who is generous will be blessed. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more happy to give than to receive. So this is... Um, what we're looking at here, it is a natural follow-up to sowing and reaping. The follow-up to sowing and reaping is a natural one. It's not surprising that we would have a verse on sowing and reaping and then we would have a verse on generosity. In fact, it's kind of common. The concepts go well together. How about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we have a chapter that centers on grace-giving. It is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. Remember Paul's describing to the Corinthians the amazing grace gift that they're putting together for the saints in Jerusalem. I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. And so they're putting this fund together. The Macedonian churches have, have pulled their fund and they're sending it to Jerusalem. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case as I was saying that you may be prepared. Otherwise uh, you're going to be embarrassed. So I sent the brethren ahead to arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same will be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. When mental attitude sins impact your grace giving it's not grace giving anymore. It's got to be bounteous. It's got to be either the free will of a cheerful giver because you want to, because you love the Lord, because you're thrilled at how gracious He's been in your life. And so you beg for the participation of, of joining in this. And so this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What is this again? But it's the law of sowing and reaping. But it's the law of sowing and reaping adapted to a financial grace-giving context. So are you going to be generous? Our Father's generous? Or are you going to scrape by with a bare minimum? Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. You see, the one who waters, you're going to be watered. Don't worry about it. Don't feel like, oh, well, if I do this, then I can't, oh, then I'm not going to, you know. Remember the kinsman that was closer than Boaz? He wouldn't redeem Ruth because he thought it would affect his own inheritance and that his own, his own heirs would suffer. What a knucklehead. He could have married Ruth. <laughs> Are you kidding me? God wouldn't let you suffer. Your inheritance would be multiplied, magnified, glorified. I mean, there'd be all kinds of stuff. And instead we... 
we read about Boaz and we don't read about Knucklehead. We don't know, we don't even know his name. I just, that's my nickname for him. Okay? God was a dummy. But God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, always all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So if you're gracious in your outlook, if you're gracious, gracious as you receive and gracious as you give, you always have the sufficiency in everything because God makes all grace abound. And so sowing and reaping is a is a good message at that point. All right, how are we doing? We're going to have to pick up here next week. Came close. We got I J K L M N. We got to get down through verse 16 here. All right. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for these principles that we've learned and uh, None of these verses we've looked at today are new. They've all been concepts we've previously addressed in earlier passages in, in, uh, in Proverbs. And Father, we understand that, uh, that you are generous and expect us to be generous. We understand that uh, the economic principles that we've studied, the issues of debt, the issues of abundance there as well. Father, I pray that uh, we never lose sight of the law of sowing and reaping. Uh, particularly when it comes to hard work versus uh, the sluggard, the diligent versus the sluggard, the, the principles of, uh, of uh, everything here, Father. This whole, this whole chapter is, is just comes alive. It's hard to imagine it was written uh, those thousands of years ago because it's just as effective today as it's ever been. So might we learn it, might we live it, might we glorify your Son in the process and be pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.